Welcome to the Swampflex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I am Boomer. And I'm Allie. <laughs> and we are here to talk about movies, if that is your wish. Is that what you truly desire? <laughs> if we did that for the full 90 minutes, I think we'd be like coughing by the end so hard. Uh, yeah, I don't think I could. I think eventually I would not sound anything. I think like that I after. can keep it up. <laughs> but I think that I'll stop trying. <laughs> I can only um, do it if I say Alexandra in my head a few times. Alexandra Amberson. Alexandra is where she lives. We're really, we don't normally start off at the top already talking about the movie that we're going to be discussing. I watched all four Wishmaster movies because, you know, it, it is like early Halloween season right now. And if I get into like a horror franchise, I have to do all of it at once. Um, wow. And that voice really has just been rattling around my head uh, after hearing it so many times over and over again. Well, I don't want to keep us from it. So I guess I'll go ahead and just tell y'all what I've been watching. Do it. Um, yeah. Real quick off the top, I do want to point out that the last time we were recorded, the Queen of England had just died. Who was a bad person with really good publicity. And this week, I every time that I saw a flag that was still at half-mast, I decided to consider that a tribute to a true queen Louise Fletcher, who appears to have been a genuinely nice person who just played a lot of terrible, terribly mean roles. Um, R.I.P. to Louise, who, of course, we on this podcast know best for her role in the long-running franchise, Flowers in the Attic. <laughs> and, of course, as Kai Wen from Star Trek. Yeah, Disney I was going to say, and Kai Wen. And, of course, I watched her very short Oscar speech for her acceptance for her Oscar uh for her performance as Nurse Ratched in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And she seemed so genuine and kind and sweet. And I know that we don't ever know any of these people, but it was very touching, especially the part at the end when she signed to her parents at home. Apparently both of them were deaf and they were deaf missionaries who opened a bunch of um, deaf churches all over the United States. So even though I have uh, mixed at best feelings about organized religion, um, they seem, you know, I think Louise Fletcher was a genuinely great actress. And I wanted to go ahead and mention at the top that I've got nothing for respect for that queen. And I would like to thank you for giving me an opportunity to use both the slide whistle and the bell in the first like minute and a half of the show. It's always great because we can't hear it. Yeah. <laughs> was the slide whistle for flowers in the attic? The slide whistle for, was for the queen dying. Oh, okay. Oh. Fair enough. This comes up far more often than it should, but I have a true bizarre fondness for Flowers in the Attic, the original 1980s adaptation with Christy Swanson and Louise Fletcher. And I genuinely think it's just because Louise Fletcher is so good in it. Looking back and trying to figure out why it is that I can't stop thinking about it, it's her. It's all her. And, you know, once again, rest in peace, Nurse Ratchet. As for what I've been watching, other than Wishmaster, I did. I took part in one of what I consider to be one of life's purest, simplest pleasures this week, which was that I was off Friday, so I went to the movies in the middle of the day when no one else was around, and 
Oh, you'll love this. I was literally the only person in the theater. Yeah. I love those days, just not even on a pandemic sort of level. Yeah. I went into the theater. I bought myself a big Dr. Pepper because none of the ICs yes. uh, had flushed yet because, you know, they had they had only been open for like an hour um, and a hot dog. And I sat in the cold darkness and I watched Barbarian, um, the new movie from Zach Kreger who I didn't realize was the director until the credits rolled. And then I was very amused by it. Kind of makes sense when you've seen the movie that he's a sketch comedy guy, right? It's very fractured and the humor's a little broad. Uh, yes and no. I, I thought it was, had you, did you already tell us that you saw it? Um, we talked about it last week um, with James and Hannah had seen it as well. Oh, okay. I don't listen to the episode episodes that i'm not on and in fact i treat that scream episode like it's the tape of the man being killed in Werner herzog's grizzly man and in my mind every time i think about listening to the betrayal i hear Werner herzog saying Umar, you must never listen to this you must never listen to this do you understand okay you're not laughing so um, <laughs> i still don't think it was that big of a deal but okay I am I am mostly kidding really about not want? listening to the episodes <laughs> that I'm on. Is that what you truly desire? <laughs> and you could wish to have it stricken from the record. I thought Barbarian was great. I loved that I never knew what was going to happen next. I really loved the lead actress whose name is currently escaping me. I've never seen her in anything else. I looked her up. She had credits and they're all in things that are kind of outside of my purview. Um, it was really great to see uh, the younger Skarsgård playing a role that was menacing only because of society, not because of anything that the character was actually doing. And I would love to really get into that more in the future, but I don't want to spoil anything for Allie. A distrust in men is a pretty broad, vague theme of the film that you could yeah. kind of touch on. And it's it's both valid and like poisonous because you know there are other men around who aren't necessarily evil in overt ways. Um, but because of the evil things that men do all the time, it kind of just like bleeds over and no one's trustworthy. Yeah, it really every man in the movie is on a spectrum of evil. And every single one of them is self-justifying. And his is not, he's essentially the nicest person in the movie, other than uh, a character who I guess would be a spoiler, uh, or the nicest man in the movie. But he is still, exists on a spectrum where he questions the validity of a woman's emotional reaction to her yeah. lived experience of dealing with men. Even if he himself is a good guy, you know, uh, he still is not receptive to feedback about men in general. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, each person that we meet who is on that spectrum is also like justifying to themselves in their own way about their own actions. It was really fun to see Justin Long play this character. I won't get into exactly what his role is in the movie. I didn't know he was in the movie until like I was watching it because I didn't see he's not in the trailers. His name is on the poster, but I didn't notice. And 
he gets the funniest parts of the movie where it, like you were saying it does sort of feel a little broad because it it's tonally incons not inconsistent but it plays with tone so that you know there comes a moment where i guess very very mild spoiler he discovers like a real creepy basement a basement that there's no other possible logical reaction other than just being like nope creepy getting out of here and he immediately is like "Ooh, can i add this to the square footage in my in my real estate listing and is like climbing around in this murder hole with his measuring tape and it's the funniest thing in the movie that is the one part of his bit that i enjoyed i really wasn't on board with like anything else they did with his character to be honest but i enjoyed the rest of the movie immensely yeah, uh, he, he kind of he dragged it down for me a little bit because it was making like very overt points with his character and like the humor of his character was very sketch comedy to me. And like, that's not the strength of the movie. The strength of the movie is the more like 70s discomfort. I can't believe I'm looking at this horror that is in, it, that is in contrast to that humor. So I don't know. The Justin Long of it all kind of makes or breaks the movie in my mind. And for, uh, I was kind of on the fence with him. I appreciated what he was representing and why he was there and the way that the film refuses to redeem him That's where true. there are a couple of moments where he seems to be self-aware, but <laughs> as in real life, those sort of epiphanic moments about the damage that you've done to other people, unless they're coupled with like, really intense introspection and sort of like uh, willingness to make amends and do a lot of self-inspection. They're just, they're just window dressing um, because he's, he's like, Oh no, am I a terrible person? Maybe I need to change. And then he does not change. Yeah. The arc of his character is definitely satisfying. Even if you are supposed to find him funny at parts, you're never supposed to like him, which is good. Yeah. Good instincts. But yeah, that's what uh, I saw this week. Allie, what have you been watching? I watched um, this movie called Arabesque. I don't know if y'all have heard it. Heard of it? It's got no. Gregory Peck and uh, Sophia Loren. Oh, I have heard of it, but yeah, I don't know and it's um, by the guy who did Charade. It's very, very similar to Charade, and it's like sort of an intrigue, sort of caper guy caught up in something it's like in over his head and it's almost like a rom-com noir got very like fast dialogue great jokes i had a lot of fun with it i <laughs> so i love charade it's like one of those movies that i'm like i could always watch that movie oh no i'm not even not even a big like audrey hepburn fan like i like her don't get me wrong but it's not like yeah, I could watch an Audrey Hepburn movie right now. It's like, no, Charade specifically is fun. But I think this movie is just as fun as Charade. But I think the reason it might not be as modernly popular is uh, there's a lot of uh, like people playing people who are supposed to be Arabic. So, Oof. yeah, I think that's like the biggest drawback. Including Sophia Loren, supposed to be an Arabic character. Strange. Um, but it was a fun movie. I enjoyed it. I thought Gregory Peck and Sophia Loren like 
I don't know if anybody else would have been surprised, but I, I thought they had like really, really good chemistry together, like on screen. I liked their, their banter together a lot. So yeah, I, I, I had fun with it, minus, you know, a problematic bit. This is brown face. It's brown face. Um so after I did that, I watched Dagon. Oh, that's a fun one. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with it. Um, I have a friend who who was a Lovecraft goth teenager. Um, now is going back through those things and separating out what was great and what was awful. Also being like, can't believe you haven't seen that, Allie. So... Yeah, we watched Dagon and watched people get sacrificed to a fish god. It was a lot of fun. I like that, you know, this is a Stuart Gordon adaptation of Lovecraft. And the main character isn't Jeffrey Coombs, but they cast a guy who looks so much like Jeffrey Coombs. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's so great. It became a joke between me and my friend that it's like, this is the look you have to have to have had attended Miskatonic University. You got to look and have a Jeffrey Coombs vibe. He's wearing this like Miskatonic University sweatshirt the whole time. It's hilarious. I don't know. It's like, we got to work in the fact that this is definitely based on Lovecraft. I remember the uh, murderous fish goddess putting in like a great performance in that movie. She's amazing love her this high fish priestess is so good so much better than the girlfriend he starts out with and then she's like you're gonna be mine and he's like no and i'm like why not she seems like a keeper i mean she has tentacles but she's got a good good look she's got great headdresses she's got stuff going on in life Anyway, we I had a lot of fun. It's one of those movies that I think is a lot of fun to watch with with your friends. Yeah, I'm generally not even that huge on Stuart Gordon, but I do like that one a lot. I guess that one and like Dolls and uh, Castle Freak are like kind of the ones that stand out to me. Yeah, I definitely did not expect to like it as much based on like it's the beginning, the very early 2000s DVR looking stuff that had it had going on. I was like, uh. It's going to be bad. It, it's not great, but for what budget is and everything, it's definitely better than I expected, just based off like the first five minutes. And then I also watched this uh, Mexican cult horror from 1968 called Even the Wind is Afraid. Great title. Ooh, I've tried to find that one so many times. Oh. Tell me, how was it? I really, really enjoyed it. And you want to know what I found it on? Was it Tubi? It was Tubi. <laughs> you have to search. So it was by so the difficult to find forever. Yeah, you have to search oh. the Spanish title, Hasta el Viento Tien Miedo. It looks like it's only available on Tubi. Yeah. <laughs> it's not available anywhere, anywhere else. else. Yeah. I, I have some concerns about Tubi that I'd like to bring up. I don't um, want to ruin our, our love of this, but let's, 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 uh, even the wind is afraid. Let's, let's, let's continue with that. Okay. So it's about these girls who are all at this boarding school with a very, like, strict and kind of cruel headmistress. And this one girl has been having nightmares, beckoning her to come to this creepy, like, off limits tower 
on the school's campus and slowly turns into this ghost story where it's a bunch of boarding school girls like running about having hijinks they've been stuck at school because they've been forbidden to go home for their like week-long vacation by the headmistress you know it's a lot of fun there's some really really great like boarding school girl hijinks in it and I also think it just turns into this really great like and it's got the the ghost story thing going on a lot it's just great it's a lot of fun I do recommend checking it out on Tubi even if you have a problem suddenly with Tubi the checks are not arriving in the mailbox that's my first problem yeah that is my problem as well I'm starting to fear that it's a right-wing conspiracy, but I don't know if I'm just seeing monsters under the bed. I want to hear it. Is it is it the ad choices or it's not the ad choices. It's the content choices. I don't know if you've noticed, but all of the things that I've ever covered on the late great planet Mirth are on Tubi. <laughs> and somehow I got logged out of Tubi on my television. So instead of it presenting me with like, oh, here are things that you might watch, although I think we've established that Tubi has no algorithm, I see a lot of like conspiracy theory documentaries on that front page. A Dinesh D'Souza style, lock her yeah. up, propaganda kind of stuff. Yeah, it's a little bit like, oh no. It has made me start to wonder if there is an insidious plan, ploy, something in play with regards to Tubi's content. They're like, come for the free Turbo Kid and 2001 A Space Odyssey. Stay for the radicalization. But I guess I'll have to do more research. I want to assume that they just have no discriminatory policies yeah, whatsoever. kind of what I want to assume as well, which is not great, but... Because they tend to have everything. Yes. To a yeah. point where, like, I'm kind of annoyed because I don't actually like watching Tubi that much. That's right. The checks aren't arriving, so I'm going off. Like, uh -oh. the advertisements are just such a buzzkill where it's like a last resort for me. Like, if I really want to watch something specific and it's the only place it is, that's when I'll watch it. But I will do everything in my power. I will pay $4 to watch a movie on VOD before I watch it on Tubi for free. Oh, that's going a little bit far, but <laughs> I'm joking. I don't need to watch the Sherman Bears wipe their ass every three minutes in the middle of my uh, spooky Mexican ghost story, you know? I get a lot of ads for HEB because I'm in Texas. So I don't get the same... <laughs> advertisements that you do which makes sense but i will say for me you know as someone who spent his whole childhood without cable and who could only really see movies that way especially me like r-rated movies because they had to be edited for television in order for me to be allowed to watch them it's the same thing with like paying for music services where people are like oh how can you deal with advertisements coming on between songs and for me i'm like it doesn't matter to me that's what the radio is that's to me what the radio has always been and i would much rather do that than get locked into paying a subscription service of like 200 dollars a year because that's the way that they really want to get your money is not by letting you buy the music by by making you subscribe I mean, I grew up drinking Shelmet tap water. That doesn't mean I, I don't enjoy a cold Perrier, you know? Like, <laughs> I've gotten used to the finer things in life. Um, 
you know, turning an 80 minute movie into a three hour meal um, is is not worth it to me. Like I'd rather pay four bucks to get in and out in 80 minutes and not have to think about whatever right wing politician is advertising on there. Because that does happen, too. Yeah, <laughs> I want to go ahead and speak up. On behalf of Tubi, I know that I was just <laughs> debasing them, but they are currently carrying the 1992 Canadian children's television program, The Odyssey, which that's the reason I only had one movie to talk about <laughs> this episode, because I have been trying to find that show for the last, I don't know, 25 You've been years. on an Odyssey to try and find it? Yes, yes. Okay, so uh, very briefly, if for our listeners out there, this is a show that was a Canadian television program for children with what is an unusually sophisticated premise, which is that this kid falls out of a tree fort and goes into a coma. And in his coma, he's in like a fantasy land, sort of like an Oz style thing where his best friend and also the bully who feels guilty for being present whenever he fell out of the tree have like analogs in this fantasy world. And he's trying to get to the tower, which is where the Brad lives. The Brad is the oldest kid and therefore in charge at the age of 15 because no one no one is older than 15 16 year olds and grown-ups are a myth but in the real world his friends and his his like presumably at least initially widowed mother are dealing with like the harsh realities of like she has to um move him to a long-term care facility and his dog is really depressed because he doesn't know where he's coming home he doesn't understand what's happened and his mom has to like uh his his grandmother comes to stay for a little bit to help with like his physical therapy while he's in a coma and then almost has a heart attack while doing it and so she can't actually help with the treatment and eventually his mother has to go through the process of having his father who's been disappeared for years declared legally dead so that they could collect the insurance money and continue to pay for his long-term care it's surprisingly dark and it's on Tubi. i've been trying to find it for my entire life since i first saw one or two episodes as a kid and it really really got in my brain so if you're out there and uh, listening in listener land and you're looking for something to put on in the background while you work for the next week and you would love to see all of your favorite canadian actors being aged 12 to 15 like ryan reynolds and jewel state Go ahead and check out uh, The Odyssey on Tubi. They do have a freakishly deep library. Like, the yeah. amount of stuff that's on there is seemingly impossible. Like, I, they must have, like, a server farm the size of YouTube's. Um, I don't really <laughs> understand how they do it. Yeah. They are pretty incredible. Just, if anything seems like it's saying, question the truth, I don't know. Maybe don't watch <laughs> it. Don't let it into your brain. Don't question any truths ever. Oh, I'm joking. I mean, question authority, but like, if it's like, if it's saying that maybe COVID was planned, just click away. Go find the Donna Reed show or the the many loves of Dobie Gillis. They're both on there. Another movie that I watched, and this is like my first time ever watching it, Hellraiser. Ooh, great for pairing with this viewing. Yes. I happen to watch that this week as well. Oh, wow. 
probably not your first time watching it. It was about my third or fourth time, but it was oh. my first time loving it. Like Ooh. I've always liked it, but I, I always liked um, the second one slightly more. And this one, it like finally clicked for me where I was like, oh, I'm really into this. Aww. I've heard you speak mm, barely positively about it in the past. And I'm delighted by this change. And it was actually our next movie of the month that um, gave me the, ne- the framework I needed to really appreciate it. Oh, wow. <laughs> Weirdly enough. Yeah, I was into it off the bat i was like wow there are so many super super bold super like weird expressionistic stylistic choices this movie is making and i am so into it like the movie was not what i was expecting at all but i liked it a whole lot did you recognize the lead uh which one sorry the one played by andrew j robinson no Oh, well, maybe you didn't recognize him without all of his prosthetics. That's Garrick. Oh, Garrick. Okay. Yes. Oh, my gosh. He's Larry Cotton. Oh, my gosh. So he's he is the he is the Hellraiser because Frank is the one who completes the box, but then he takes over Larry's body, you know, and is wearing his skin. So it's it's Andrew Robinson under there. That's Garrick. Eric, oh my gosh. Yeah, I did not recognize him at all. Fair enough. It's hard sometimes with Star Trek makeup because the makeup is so good. It's the voice for me. I can always hear his voice, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I thought there were a lot of bold, stylistic choices in this movie that I was like, wow, this movie is so cool and arty and weird. And I did not expect that. And I really, really liked it. I've always enjoyed it myself, like the few times I've seen it, but I feel like we grew up with all that visual information, like being familiar out in the world. Like you kind of see the Cenobites like years before you actually get to watch the movie yourself, you know? Yes. Which is why I was surprised by what it was like, because if you just see what the Cenobites are. I don't know. You get the vibe. It's going to be a totally different movie. Yeah. And the kind of the movie I was expecting was uh, Hellbound, Hellraiser Two, which is like more in this like fantastic like other space and like really goes to the wall with the um, special effects and really over the top vicious stuff. Mm-hmm. And I always kind of preferred that to this one. Yeah, I get that. The reason I watched Hellraiser this week though wasn't because it's got that Hulu remake coming up. I mean that doesn't hurt. But um, we are talking wow. about Depp Monster for our next movie of the month, uh, which was Boomer's Selection. Uh, and it is about a wicked stepmother uh, who <laughs> infiltrates a family. And she's this like undercover troglodyte uh, who like feeds on joggers while she's like um, seducing this kid's parent. A trollolog. Uh, Popkins. Of Popkins. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I was thinking about. I could have just watched a bunch of other a bunch of like little kid horror movies that would have been more on theme. But I was thinking about like evil step parents in horror movies. Yeah. And I just kind of went for the big ones. And uh this one came to mind cuz like what a terrible stepmother to have. Oh, yes. <laughs> Someone who's like oh, obsessed so with your awful. uncle. Yeah. Obsessed with your possible like actually abusive uncle is also yeah my god like oh and just like watching her cheat on your dad and then finding out she's murdering the guys that she's cheating on him with like 
that's what stood out to me when I was like thinking about the movie and then rewatching it in, in that context. I kind of appreciated it more for like the domestic melodrama it is. Mm-hmm. And like, they're just yes. the shots of her like looking distraught on a couch um, as yes. she's like working up the nerve to kill strange guys from the bar. And like, um, there's some like really over the top, almost like Douglas Sirk style, like yes. soft lighting yes. on like people's distraught faces. This is what I mean. Yes. It's like, there's so many visual choices that I'm like, what is this movie? And then the S and M stuff comes in and feels like pure id, like nightmare, sexual mania stuff. And yeah, I it really clicked with me this time, where I've always appreciated those elements, but I've never like fully locked onto it. And and in the middle of this viewing, I was like, oh, this is one of the greatest horror movies ever made. Like I get it now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just oh my god! Viewing. Finally, it was the third time was the charm because I have been offended by your lack of interest in Hellraiser before. Maybe one of these days. How many viewings did it take for you to fall in love? Three. <laughs> and how many times have you seen the gift? Oh, like three, or, <laughs> three or four, actually. Yeah. Okay. All right. Never mind then. <laughs> actually, I think some of my resentment to the gift is having seen it so many times. It's like, what a mediocre film for me to have seen like four times. I should be like watching classics I've never watched before. Let's move on (laughs) (laughs) and if i was dismissive about hellraiser last time it might have been because we were watching a truly awful clive barker adaptation that hulu produced books of blood um which i hope does not you know i hope that's not any indication of how this hellraiser remake is going to go even though the director's a lot higher pedigree this time around yeah i really really enjoyed it i really enjoyed again all the weird stylistic just the lighting the like music when the Cenobites enter oh so good like loved it pop culturally the Cenobites are really treated as these like horrible mean monstrous things the other thing they're just doing them they're just getting their rocks off that's the thing that I also really liked is like sometimes sometimes literally off Sorry. These aren't the villains. These guys are just hanging out. Okay. I mean, maybe they want to like stroke their throat clit while watching you suffer, but you know, pretty passive activity. They have such sights to show you. (laughs) And you know, they don't just come unbidden. You know, you have to you have to summon them, and it's like the most complicated phone call to to get them to come. (laughs) No pun intended. Sorry. <laughs> I do want to put in a good word for Hellbound, the second one. I have not seen I would the rest second of the sequels, but you know, uh, Hellbound's great. I was gonna say, my friend was like, the second one's all right, but after that, I'll do it. I like the third one. It has Terry Farrell in it. Yeah, I was gonna say, okay, but you're telling me not to watch past a certain point in a horror franchise because it gets bad, and I don't know if you know that's like. Telling a kid not to eat a piece of cake that's right in front of them. What are you doing? I believe there is a um, a Cenobite that shoots um, CDs <laughs> and victims in a later sequel. Uh, I at least need to get true. that far. Yeah, yeah. Definitely have to get to, to that. Promise of that is really going to keep me going. Um, but yeah, that was the, the last one I had to talk about. So it's like a perfect segue there that you have also watched it this past week. So, what else have you been watching, Brandon? Um, I guess that horror completionist impulse brought me back to the theater to see Pearl, a prequel to a movie that I liked okay, X. 
from earlier this year. Mm-hmm. I do kind of like the uh, William Castle style, like showmanship of like immediately launching a series of movies that people haven't even seen the first one yet. Yeah. yeah. I, I have mixed feelings about like now I know who the killer in X is because the prequel is out, even though uh, it barely has time. I don't think that's that much of a surprise. I would okay. say like going into X cold, it took me a minute to realize that Mia Goth was playing two characters. And like discovering that for myself mid film was kind of fun, but you know who the villains are pretty early on in that film. Even if you don't recognize who's under the prosthetic makeup immediately, uh, it's pretty clear who's going to be doing the killing. I thought I would like X more than I did because it's like a throwback 70s porno set that has like a slasher set on it. I just realized watching it like I'm so tired of the 70s grindhouse aesthetic like. Rob Zombie started making movies when I was in high school. And honestly, this kind of dragged Barbarian down slightly for me, too. Like, I'm really ready for the world to move on and come up with, like, a new horror aesthetic instead of just beating that grindhouse thing into the ground. Um, Not saying that Barbarian didn't come up with more inventive things to do with that tone. It definitely does. Um, But with X, I was just kind of getting bored with it. And also, like, the pornography stuff in it was very... Again, sketch comedy like like it was very like, you know, the um, corny dialogue and chunky funk guitar riffs that you would expect in a porn parody on like SNL 20 years ago. Like it really didn't honor that independent filmmaking style in a way that I think a lot more like scholarly approaches to pornography as like legitimate cinema have been doing lately. It it felt like it was kind of stuck in like an older view of what those people were doing. So I I thought X was okay. Um, but Mia Goth is so fucking cool <laughs> that I had to go back and watch the prequel. Uh, she can do anything. And um, in this one, she's on the screen the entire time. And it's set earlier. It's it's going more for a old Hollywood melodrama style. Um, so the era of pastiche that it is in is not as tired as that like 70s grindhouse thing. Um, it reminded me a lot of like Big Top Pee Wee or like a, a John Waters comedy from the 90s or something um, where it's like kind of it's not quite riffing on like the Douglas Sirk melodramas, but it is in the vein of movies that have taken that style and, and camped it up. Um, and, you know, Mia Goth is incredible. Like she's really fun to watch. I don't even think you need to watch X to enjoy this one. I think it's fine on its own. What would you think about watching that and then X? In like chronological order, do you think that that I would think be that's a valid perfectly strategy? Legit. Yeah. Okay. Perfectly fine. You heard it here first, folks. Perfectly <laughs> fine. And you know what? They announced uh, at the end of Pearl that there would be a third one set in the '80s, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I'll go back and watch it. I don't care. Like, I'll be there." Um, I, I I like that she's getting her own franchise out the gate. Like, she deserves it. Um, everything that's good about the movie is good because of her. She even got a co-writing credit on it, I believe because of a couple monologues that she gave a lot of like depth to, um, while developing the character with Ty West on the spot. I think as far as like its connections to X, I think they're pretty weak. Like they both have a running theme about resentment, about not enjoying your body and enjoying pleasure while you're young because of like religious attitudes towards sexual pleasure. And there's a very thin connection in this one where she watches a stag film from a projection booth 
So you get a little bit of like that era's pornography. I mean, it's set in like the early days of film, like I think like 1918 or something like that. So it, it could have worked her into making a stag film or something like really made the connections to X more thematically strong, but like, it didn't really bother. It was just like, Oh, here's what this character was up to 50 years ago. So I don't really think that, um, you need to see X first or even see X at all to enjoy Pearl. I think it's a more enjoyable film on its own (laughs) than the thing it's supporting. And you just get more Mia Goth in it. Like instead of there being 20 characters, it's really all about her and everything revolves around her. So um, the, the best parts of X were like sort of amplified in this one. And on a non-horror bent, I saw the new film from the director of The Lore, whose oh, name yeah. I should have written down because it's a long Polish name. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's Polish. <laughs> Agnieszka Smazinska. No chance in hell I'd pronounce that correctly. But uh, she... <laughs> Has made a couple movies since The Lore, which was the Polish disco horror musical about killer mermaids. Uh, came out around 2017, 2018, and was one of my favorite films of the past decade. And she's made a couple features since then that have been very quiet on like the festival circuit and not really gotten the same level of attention as The Lore. I thought her new one, it's called The Silent Twins, was pretty good. Uh, but it is strange because she is such... Again, basing it off the one movie I've seen before, like such a vivid visual stylist. Mm -hmm. And in this case, she's almost making her version of like an award season drama. It's a historical drama about these real life British twins whose um, parents were from Barbados. So they were the only like black residents of their neighborhood in Britain. And they were bullied mercilessly um, by all the white prep school children that they had to go to class with. So the twins just sort of like retreated back into their own little private world and refused to speak to anyone else besides each other and were eventually institutionalized for not participating in society in frickin' Bedlam, uh, which oh, the movie portrays needed. very harshly. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, so that stuff plays kind of like this like Wikipedia summary biopic. Like it's very grim and gray and sticks to the facts about their lives. But in their private moments, when they're communicating with each other, they were outsider artists. Like they made puppets and wrote these like very lengthy manuscripts in real life. And the movie bases a lot of its inner life, inner imagination off of those diaries and manuscripts and the like objects they left behind. Uh, One of them's still alive, but she's not in the public eye anymore. And they have these like stop motion fantasy sequences with the puppets. They have these um, stop motion retellings of their short stories. And um, they have these sort of music video breaks from reality um, that very much recall the like disco fantasy sequences of the lore, like the mall scene or the, um, the nightclub performances where the walls just sort of like rip away. And then they're in this like larger studio space, you know? So it's kind of like, not going to please anyone fully. (laughs) Like I'm sitting there wishing that it would be more out there like the lore. And I'm sure there are people wishing that it wasn't so strange and grotesque and fantastic when it is like, they're kind of wishing for like a more traditional drama. Um, I can, I can hear people huffing in the theater and um, frustration every time it like 
would break away from the story to go into the fantasy sequences. Oh, no. And I was like, oh, no, this is the good stuff. <laughs> so it, it's kind of like a weird mismatch of director and material. Um, but I thought it was interesting. I thought it was pretty good, actually. I'm, uh, it sounds like I'm downplaying it. <laughs> There's a lot more to chew on this than there is in Pearl, and yet I feel like I have less to say about it. Uh, but I, I think it's pretty good. The character dynamics are very thorny. They're very difficult women. Ooh, you know, I love that. And their refusal to participate in society, it's like, well, why would they? Uh, you know, yeah. everything outside of their little fantasy world fucking sucks. So, like, I get it. Let's get this over with, shall we? Make your wishes. Three wishes, Alexandra. Doesn't that intrigue you? Just a little. Anything you want. Anything? You ask for anything. I must grant it. A trip to the moon. A visit to Pharaoh's Egypt. What happened if I wished you dead? Why, how remarkably original, Alexandra. I'll tell you what. I'll give you one free wish. A sample. Get you into the spirit of the game. This week, it was my wish that we watch the 1997 film Wishmaster, which was produced, not directed, by Wes Craven. Directed by Robert Kurtzman and released in theaters, even though it does not always feel like it. This was definitely a TV watch yeah. for me as a kid. Yeah, me too. This was a movie that seemed to be, it, it was like, uh, it, it came out a lot, or it came on a lot during that period of time where Sci-Fi Channel was constantly paying for the rights for a theatrical release and all of its direct-to-video sequels. I remember this happening a lot where it would just be like Darkman all day. Where you would watch, like, you know, Darkman, which is a great movie, and then it's direct-to-video sequels, which were uh, not. And I remember there being Wishmaster on a lot, and I'm kind of surprised, because I never actually saw this one on Sci-Fi Channel when I was a kid. I know that it was advertised on there a lot, because I specifically remember the Going My Way <laughs> clip being in the advertisements for, like, Sci-Fi's big October Halloween Scarefest. But man, it's kind of hard to imagine how they could have put this on television, yeah. like especially that opening scene. I guess um, I'll explain that it was my wish to watch this movie <laughs> because the Alamo Draft House creates a pre-show experience for all of their viewing uh, screenings and clips from. Wishmaster appeared all throughout the pre-screening for 3,000 years of longing, once again reigniting like a fire opal my passion to see this movie that I remembered not seeing in my childhood. Kind of funny, it does the exact opposite of what 3,000 years of longing does. Like that whole movie is like, I'm not here to punish you for wishes. And all the Wishmaster does is punish you for your wishes. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's also very funny now that I think about it because I just mentioned Darkman that Ted Raimi gets crushed. Yes, I was movies. thinking that. Um, <laughs> what other movie did we watch together that Ted Raimi just gets killed like right at the beginning? Well, we were we've talked about Darkman. Yeah, but there was another movie um, we watched together. I don't know. Doesn't he famously get killed like all the time? Yes. He's like around just to get torn apart. Yeah. Maybe it's the Evil Dead movies Maybe. that we're thinking about. He's also in Candyman with Tony Todd, who yes, I'm going to be completely I think, I'm honest. I'm thinking of Candyman. That's what I'm thinking of. Okay. Yes. I was watching this movie and I was like, why do they have a different actor playing the Wishmaster out of the makeup? Because because Tony Todd is credited so heavily in this movie, I thought Tony Todd was the Wishmaster. I thought he was the djinn. And then I was like, why do they have a white man playing him when he's in his civilian attire, quote unquote? And I was like, oh, wait, never mind. I think we need to like keep spelling out all the horror bona fides at this point. Like Tony Todd, Ted Raimi. Robert England. Yeah. Wes Craven. Angus Scrim. Uh, just doing the opening narration for some reason. Kane Hodder. Kane Hodder was As the worst the... death. <laughs> Is it the worst, or oh, it's like in the most painful, or um, in a movie that is all about showcasing the magic of special effects? Um, his is the worst realized one. Just truly awful to look at, and has aged poorly in comparison to everything else. Fair enough. Fair enough. And the last one I, I want to name is uh, Screaming Mad George did some of the paintings in the final like art gallery sequence. Screaming Mad George! Oh. I also don't know if, I mean, maybe you did, maybe you didn't, but I, <laughs> the moment that they, uh, that Robert England took the, the lead into his gallery of dead gods, it panned past a statue. I was like, that's Pazuzu. I was like, that's. Yeah. That's Pazuzu right there. That's not a real thing. That's Pazuzu. And that's kind of the thing about this movie is like it was made by horror nerds. Like this probably yeah. should have been a disposable straight to VHS nothing of a film. But the people making it are obviously such dorks about this genre that they like put a lot of texture and detail into like the stuff that matters to horror audiences. And it ends up being like a really fun watch. Yeah. There's even uh, there's even um genie's bottle in one scene very briefly it's the scene where the guy who runs the assessment place chris lemon jack lemon's son the one with the big eyes yeah he he's like over her shoulder and then as she stands to get up and leave it pans up and genie's bottle from i dream of genie is on the top of her bookshelf <laughs> i was like man this movie is just chalk Full. I guess we should describe what this is about. Um, the Wishmaster is a gym, a being created out of fire, older than time, created in the time between the creation of angels and man. And should the being that freed him from his captivity make three wishes, the other jinn will escape from their dimension and conquer Earth. Some weirdly Christian yeah. details in the mythology of this, which only gets worse as the sequels go along. They get really oh my like God. angels and demons and stuff. Yeah, the second one really, I was like, what? 
I don't. Okay, we'll we'll get to that because you watched all four. I just watched the first two. You're smarter. Than I me. just watched the first one, so you're the smartest. Maybe I'll have to go back yeah. and uh, be the second one. Smart introduces like priests. Oh, it's weird. And then the third one and fourth one both have angels like become like in the flesh characters on Earth in the oh, battle against no. this gin. Okay. Yeah. Oh no. I might sort of like to watch that though. <laughs> Just once again, you you put a kid in front of a stale piece of cake and you tell them not to eat it. Right there. Got sugar. I will say earlier, I off mic, I mentioned that to me, Wishmaster had big Farscape vibes. Mm-hmm. And what I really meant was that the actor playing the Wishmaster really feel, felt like he should have been on Farscape. But I would like to talk about some of the other vibes that were present in this film that I that really came through for me. The scene where the pharmacist dies suddenly of like sudden onset cancer felt like the opening of an episode of Fringe. So Fringe was sort of like a post 9-11 exiles, um, which sounds terrible, but it's actually, in my opinion, one of the five best science fiction series of the 2010s. But I'll, you know, I'll skip past all of that and just say that there are many episodes of Fringe which open with an event like a man suddenly dying of, like, immediate onset cancer. And then, like, you know, Dunham and the bishops show up and then have to investigate it. I also got a lot of Buffy vibes whenever the Wishmaster was wandering around the college campus. I think it was just like that goofy sort of like monster of the 90s with the 90s fashion and the school setting that really felt like first season Buffy which makes sense because they came out the same year oh my god I tried to watch Buffy the other day because I was just kind of surfing television channels and it was on and you know it's a show I've had a hard time getting into but what I tuned into was like a literally like three minute shot of Xander strutting across campus in slow motion to some like terrible alt rock song. And I was like, I can't do it. <laughs> but it, it was very Wishmaster. Which that one's about a wish. So that makes sense. <laughs> um, so <laughs> one of the things that I knew immediately that we needed to talk about on this podcast while watching this movie. Okay. So our lead, Alexandra, her parents died in a fire. Right. Yeah. And she was able to save her sister and not her parents. And she has all of this survivor's guilt. And her sister is like, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And then it immediately cuts to her looking into a fireplace. If my parents died tragically in a fire, I would never live in an apartment with a fireplace, for one thing. And I certainly would never set a fire in it. Okay? And then she has... One of those uh, catapult nightmare things where she has a nightmare and then she wakes up and then it turns out she hasn't woken up and then she she really does wake up. Mm-hmm. And then it pans down to lit candles at the foot of her bed. I think it is her fault. I think she did kill her parents. I know that we're supposed to be like, oh, poor thing. I do think it was her fault. Uh, genuinely kind of seems like it might have been yeah but like in a similar way as to like how her friend's death is her fault she's bringing this suspicious thing to him i mean 
I think that the death of her friend is an accident that she could not have predicted. I think that the death of her parents, considering that this is a woman who just falls asleep with multiple lit candles in front of a billowing curtain at the foot of her bed, I genuinely think that that was some gross negligence and she was in fact responsible for their deaths and she should feel guilty. Because clearly she didn't learn anything. Yeah, that's one of the details from the original that bleeds over to the um, sequels as well, is that there's always shots of some lady in bed tossing while having a nightmare of like the Wishmaster's evil machinations. So her sweat, her sweating in, in bed uh, while dreaming of the Wishmaster's evil deeds or her parents' death is like uh, iconic Wishmaster stuff. That's like one of the main things that carries it, over through the series. You even in a horror movie, if you're not a lady having a dream of the villain of the movie? That's my question. In just a shirt and panties, usually. Yeah. Okay. Now, my assumption based on the difference in the acting between Alexandra and Morgana in the second one, my assumption is if the lady leads in these movies continue to get worse on that same scale of acting ability, that in the fourth film, the lead is a potato? <laughs> I will say the third one is very bad. And the really? fourth one is like, at least does something interesting with the, where it went after that. The lead in the third one is just so bland and forgettable. It's all college campus shenanigans and very little Wishmaster. Um, and they changed the actor who plays the Wishmaster both in and out of makeup uh, in the third one. And the movie never really recovers from that. Because as goofy as that guy's, like, evil voice is, like, he does bring something to the role. Like, he's got this kind of gravitas. Yeah. Uh, you mean goofy? Yeah, he's got a thing going Yeah, he's on. goofy. What are you talking about? <laughs> I thought he was all right. I think he's great. Yeah. If they got rid of the Wishmaster, that's like getting rid of, um, that's like changing Pinhead or Freddy Krueger to me. Sacrilege. Yeah. I mean, I know that they did both of those things. <laughs> <laughs> and it was sacrilege when they did it. And those are yeah. the two series that this one is riffing on right like yeah that it resembles the most for sure especially nightmare on elm street yeah that's what i thought going in because it has those like surrealistic makeup effects uh the director of wishmaster did the effects on a bunch of west craven movies including a few nightmares and you know his interest in special effects shows in this movie like the whole point of this movie is an excuse for people to make wishes for the wishmaster to take extremely literally like Amelia Bedelia and uh, <laughs> punish them for their crimes. <laughs> Amelia Bedelia, the horror movie. Uh, yeah. Exactly this. <laughs> but I don't know, watching Hellraiser so closely after watching this, I was like, okay, there's a lot of that DNA here too. And I think the writer of this wrote a bunch of Hellraiser sequels. Yes. And in fact, there's a lot of names that are the same, if you notice. And that's probably a deliberate reference, right? Yeah. Or lazy be. shorthand that just like a placeholder in the screenplay that never got replaced, uh, which is possible too, because yeah. this was made in like a month on like a very small budget. But I was thinking of Hellraiser a lot, particularly in the first scene where the Wishmaster is released from the stone and it's a uh, Vern Troyer in a like small Wishmaster costume. Um, and he needs wishes to grow bigger. It's very Frank in the attic. Oh yeah. Uh, begging yeah. For Blood. Yeah, Blood. but it's also very Freddy needing the people to believe in him for him to be able to come back to power as seen in the Kelly Rowland vehicle, Freddy versus Jason. <laughs> <laughs> 
but yeah, I think I think there's a lot of DNA from both of those in the in this. Like, and I mean that makes sense because the two main creative voices behind it worked on both of those movies series. Yeah, and you know Robert England is there. Yeah, which you know adds to it as well. I loved this. I know that it was my choice, but I had never seen it before, and I loved it. It's a lot of fun, and you could tell everybody working on it had a lot of fun, which is always is always good. Yeah, apparently a lot of the extras in those like big party scenes, like there's one at the beginning and one at the end, the kind of bookend of the movie. A lot of like the people wearing prosthetics being exploded and like torn apart and like having their skeletons lift out of their bodies and run away were just crew members who like pitched in. Yes. Uh, anyone who had a SAG card basically like oh, wow. got into makeup and did extra work on the movie to make sure that it could happen on this scale. So like everyone literally was having the time of their lives, which w- with what seemed like the most generic set up for a movie like I, I can't imagine this was anyone's passion project but once they assembled the crew that they did with all these like industry people who like probably had worked together before on other you know horror projects like the horror nerd energy flowing through its veins is very pure yes. <laughs> and everyone was like doing their best um to make all of like the gore and the stuff that matters like look great um, and putting in extra hours and extra effort. Uh, and it, it really shows. Like, it's a really fun movie when it's just sort of going off and, like, showing you wonders. Showing you wonders. <laughs> the way the Wishmaster was. Yeah. I forgot to mention that one of the other vibes I got is in the scene in which Alexandra goes and meets <laughs> this, like, folk professor. Reminded me a lot of the scene where Halle Berry goes to Frances Conroy and Catwoman where she's like giving her all of this completely nonsense explanation about what's happening to her and whenever she's like why doesn't anyone know about this and and Catwoman Frances Conroy is like suppress my research male academia and I kept (laughs) thinking about that scene whenever she's talking to this woman in her like giant 90s statement necklaces (laughs) Who's like, I don't even belong here. This should be a theater thing. I'm a folklore professor. Although when that woman came on screen with the mask, it did give me, I I did jump. It was a jump scare (laughs) that affected me. And her like evil turn where she's actually the Wishmaster in disguise. Like it's so good. That seems very good. Yeah. I love that rug pull. That seems like actually creepy. Uh, Once like everything's sort of out in the open and he's like, make your fucking wishes right now. (laughs) Let's go. Are you cold? Are you thirsty? (laughs) Can I get you a cheese sandwich? (laughs) What an evil bastard. (laughs) One of the things that I forgot to mention when we talked about Barbarian that I was thinking about when I watched this movie was that Barbarian is also partially a movie about how police are useless. Oh, yeah. Um, That's also like an element of that movie. And it's also an element of this one. The police are completely useless here as well. Until um, the angry guy, the angry cop who was in Aliens as that, you know, one of the Marine cannon fodder, uh, the one who gets his arm burned off by the acid in their like tank sequence. Mm -hmm. He's like, I really wish that we could nail that guy to the wall. And it's they (laughs) they pan over and it's it's this guy who looks just like Chris Fleming. 
the internet comedian, yes, which to me made me laugh like Chris so Fleming. much. <laughs> I was like, oh, they want to kill Chris Fleming. What did he do this All time? He, is it because of his, is it because of his manifesto? Yeah. <laughs> so I had, I, I laughed so hard. And then they really, that sequence is also like, I, I don't know how they must have edited that for television because it's gruesome. There's so much gruesome oh, this yeah. year. And it's all so ooey gooey and fun. It's like if if <laughs> it's like every time they were shooting a sequence, they were like, "Can we make this dickier and grosser?" It's kind of how I felt about Hellraiser as well. Actually, like all of the scenes of Frank in the attic, and he's just literally dripping. I'm like, oh my gosh. It's so good. I I watched Hellraiser with my roommate a few years back when I, we were still living together, and I could not hit, get him on board with just how great it was. But even he was really impressed with the sequence with like the um, the reverse melting of the body, and he was like, "How did they do that with those effects?" I was like, "Well, it was probably like a wax sculpture." that they melted and then reversed the footage. And he was like, oh, right, that makes sense. But it's still, even that was impressive to him. And everything in this really yes. takes from that and also pushes it to its limit. I really enjoyed, uh, God, there's so much, but the person who's like turning into a tree. I love the skeleton oh, just great. coming out of the body screaming still. Just, That's oh. great. Yes. There's only two deaths that don't really work and they're both from like, horror god cameos like Kane Hodder and Tony Todd oh I don't mind that one that one was like I, I thought that one was fun and kind of clever it's not clever it's like a cheat he's like do you want to escape from your job but he doesn't get to escape yeah. <laughs> he just drowns in a little Houdini tank uh, maybe if it was worded, do you want a chance to escape? I would have been okay. Yeah. I, this is the one time I'm going to choose to be pedantic. Well, you should I usually hate pedantry. <laughs> well, I have very pedantic complaints about Wishmaster too. So okay, <laughs> probably a smarter use of your energy. I was going to say you should be pedantic when it comes to a genie being pedantic. Yeah, if he's going to take everything very literally, I'm going to start parsing his word choices. But honestly, the Kane Hodder one is the the worst. Like. I get what they were going for. Like they just wanted to play with computer graphics. He, sa yeah. he says like, if you want to get into this building, you have to go through me like as a uh, security guard. And he gets turned into glass and the Wishmaster walks through him and he shatters into a million pieces that all fly directly at the camera. And it looks like dog shit. <laughs> it looks so yeah. bad. Yeah. It really looks it like looks 2007 terrible. era attempts to like 3d movie. If I like a 2d movie, yeah. you know, and uh, I'll also say <laughs> that was what I, I don't think we've talked enough about like the, the intentional comedy in this movie. And that scene has one of the best jokes, which is whenever he's like, I want you to leave. And so the Wishmaster's like, like yeah. trying yeah. to turn around. He's like, no, no, that's not, that's that's not, not what it. you're supposed to do. It's so good. I want you to leave this building. Uh, oh, okay. It was great. I loved it. You know how on this show you say that that thing I like a lot. Um, yeah, and you're referring to a very specific yeah. trope. Um, yeah, I think this movie does the thing I like the most twice, which is I love when things just sort of like completely let go, and it, there's just like a room full of people who are all experiencing different chaotic events all at the same time. So like. The ends of haunted house movies are like this, where like yes. the shit hits the fan and everyone's just on fire or drowning or like in their own little worlds. 
experiencing a different kind of terror. Mm-hmm. And this movie opens and closes with parties where that happens. Like it's not just yeah. one special effect. It's like a woman shattering into glass, a guy being strangled with piano wire, a lady oh, turning into a tree. One. It's the piano death. Gruesome. Yeah. That's very Hellraiser. It's very like Cenobite looking that um that death. That was the one that that to me I liked the least, I will say. Uh, Just really? because I did not I didn't like the CGI piano strings. It didn't, didn't Oh, but it. the the difference though is like when Kane Hodder turns into the CGI glass, there's no like tactile grossness to it. Once the strings yeah. wrap around his face, it gets so yeah. believably grotesque. Like it looks very painful. Um and it, it's also, like a sustained I think gore. I'm a sucker for supernatural piano death. Like I love the piano scene, Hausu. Like, oh my god, yeah. that's another movie where things go like completely yes, off just the walls. Totally the way I like. That is Robert Kurtzman as well. Oh, the director. The director. He is that's the cool. one who was killed by the piano wire. You could tell they were having fun. I mean, yeah. we've already said that, but god, like that really sure is were. like god the main selling point here. And no one was having more fun than the Wishmaster. I I wish I had seen this lead actress in more. I was really impressed by her. I'm surprised she's not in a Star Trek. Yeah. Well, what's crazy is I kept thinking about how much she looked like Jerry Ryan. Yes, that's what I kept thinking, too. I was like, that's not Jerry Ryan, but I want it to be Jerry Ryan. She just looks like a short Jerry Ryan. She has very similar facial structure. And they have the same hair color and the same eye color. So it was a little like, whoa, it's not her. Uh, I won't say that it should be, only because I really liked this actress. I even thought that she effectively pulled off that stuff with her horrible best friend who wanted to bang her. Hated him. What was up with that? He's barely in it. You don't have time to hate him. He's such a he's such a straight man though. Where she's like, "Look, I just want to be friends. You don't understand that this will ruin it." And at the end of the film, the narrative contrives to make her go along with it i was not i didn't love that i didn't that. love that either at all but the movie gives you the gift of not having to spend time with that guy <laughs> like, that is true he's barely get a, a satisfying like gruesome death though he just gets exploded and then the wishmaster is just like okay cool. i don't know he's like he's on the ground begging for his life from Vern troyer who's just like yeah pulling the I, wishes I out of him with that part i agree that's pretty it's pretty harsh I also, I also love, I was imagining like the university having to explain or like, I I didn't realize that he was like injured at first by the explosion. And I was really looking forward to uh, what I thought was going to happen in this movie was a sequence where he would have to explain to the university director why he destroyed an extremely valuable piece of lab equipment, (laughs) just trying to impress his friend. Like, I really thought that scene was going to happen, but no, because he's kind of set up as like the love interest, but no, he just dies. Uh, It's like, boom, done. I really thought that like he had been more injured. I thought we were going to get a real gruesome body, but I'm just injured. Save those uh, production dollars for like the wishes so you can really go over the top with the death. Robert England was touching this woman's face way too much. (laughs) Oh, yeah. He like touches the small of her back, like giving her the tour. I don't know. It's just like, guys, just that kind of sleazeball. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, he was that kind of sleazeball, but I was, I was like, oh. I one of the other things that is on Tubi oh. is um Freddy's Nightmares. Oh, the TV show? 
that yeah, suddenly that's on Tubi now. And I started watching the first episode just to kind of get a feel for it. And the first episode is about um the Freddy trial and then what happened after. Um, I didn't finish the episode. I was so bored by it. But in the beginning, it spends a lot of time focusing on not yet demonic not yet burned freddy's hands and the back of his head while he sits in a cage in the courtroom and it, I, I kept thinking about you know it was very clear that they were playing with audience expectations and then they show like robert england's you know real face yeah. and it felt like this movie they really were just like robert england's face as much as you can this is what he looks he's the like. first he shows up yeah. if you watch these credits it lists the cast in order of appearance. It's more than halfway through before it gets to Alexandra. Yeah. <laughs> like he's so much more present in the film for the first like half of it than she is. Well, I think they wanted the air of this being a Wes Craven film. But then they, they save Tony Todd all the way to the end, you know. <laughs> I do think the thing that holds this back and like why it's not a more respected horror icon is like that Freddy Krueger look, that Jason or Chucky look, very strong visual that like you can latch onto. The actual like Wishmaster Evil Jin look is like so yeah, bland. Yeah, I feel like he should have been like actually blue or something. He gets more blue yeah. in three and four. Uh, it does not help. It just okay. makes him look goofier. I was gonna say I feel like <laughs> some color other than just this like gross. That could have helped. I think they were trying to avoid the blue because of like Aladdin. Aladdin, yeah. Although I will say he looks most like a Mortal Kombat character, oh, like a movie from the Mortal Kombat yeah, film is what he, he reminds does. me of most. But he looks like a Mortal Kombat extra and not like a main yeah. player. Like there's just really nothing distinguishing him from other demons. He looks like a Mortal Kombat character that was a favorite in the game and had a cameo in the movie and nerds are still raging about it, <laughs> is what he looks like. I uh, Real quick to circle back, though, I, I think that I liked his makeup better in this one than in the second one. Yeah, they had more money and time, I'm sure. They had more money and time on the second one, it seems like, but I think oh. that they ended up making a less iconic looking thing to me. Because he seems like he's like redder in the later ones and he gets yeah. more like they give him like tattoos and scarification. And I like him better as just like a weird, like Rumpelstiltskin goblin. I mean, it's just like besides his earlobes and the like sort of like horns that grow into his shoulders. I just really nothing going on. Like there's no distinguishing features. Yeah. I'd still rather watch this than like, I don't know the tongue-in-cheek throwbacks to this stuff, like Psycho Goreman, I feel like he was kind of making fun of these like anonymous VHS-era horror things that ne never really took off as the their own, you know? I'm saying that for a movie that had three sequels, but it feels like Wishmaster never really became like a big deal. I think that we should be really thoughtful in our wording about movies like Psycho Goreman when we have a hurt that's still so fresh. I'm just <laughs> I think that movie's okay. I just think, like, I would rather watch this, like, genuine product rather than the pastiche, even though this has maybe even less personality than the send-up, you know? Which, <laughs> I don't know. It has personality, but it's not in its monster. 
Yeah, I feel like they were trying to make a new Freddy or a new Chucky or something here, and it really oh, just yeah. doesn't work. They were really trying to like regrimify the concept of gin as well. Yeah, you know, like the it had gotten very she, the the folklore lady is like, oh, forget about Barbara Eden, forget about yes, Robin yes. Williams. This is really horrible shit, lady, and. <laughs> I I think that it was at least intentionally like or partially that was its intent was just to be like you know we've let Jen and Genies get a little goofy in our you know pop culture let's make sure to make them scary again okay I know that we're maybe jumping ahead a little and I'm sorry about this Allie I hated the homes of every single person in both of the movies that I saw could not stand them I kept wishing that they would switch to a more like interesting or at least less ugly set. Yeah. I hated Alexandra's apartment. And I also really hated the loft that Morgana lived in the second one. Uh, what is it like a kind of industrial, like outskirts of town kind of loft, right? It's very much the it's very much the loft that was lived in by every soft vigilante sci-fi channel original character like <laughs> um painkiller jane and the invisible man and even a little bit first wave from like 1999 until 2008 it's the loft that every single one of those characters had where their refrigerator was a repurposed you know uh clear glass sliding door thing I think in general, the the second one is a huge step down from the first one in like every way. Like Alexandra Morgana, even like the protagonist is like not nearly as interesting or bringing anything to yeah. the screen. And Alexandra is not really written that interestingly either. Her no. backstory is the most interesting thing about her, and it's very boring and paints her in a bad light. It really is the performance from the actress that yeah. makes it kind of sing. And you get in Morgana a character that theoretically would be a little bit more interesting. The idea of this like art thief. Okay, Allie. So what let's let's give you the rundown uh, on Wishmaster yeah, Master tell 2. Me, okay. Tell me Wishmaster 2. So Sometime between uh, Wishmaster and Wishmaster 2, Evil Never Dies, um, Robert England's statue that the Wishmaster's fire opal is inside of uh, is moved from his uh, Pazuzu dead god room to like just a, like an, like a museum. Theoretically an art museum, but you know it has this artifact there, so who knows? And in the process of a shootout with the police, um the the statue's face gets shot off and this woman who's one of the thieves sees the gym and pockets it right so then her boyfriend or whatever gets shot up real bad uh the wishmaster emerges from the gym he does sort of the same thing where he offers to you know get rid of his pain and then for some reason, the Wishmaster allows himself to be apprehended by the police. Like, in theory, and it, it creates a narrative element where he goes into this prison and starts, like, giving the prisoners all of their wishes coming true, literally. And so I kind of understand from a narrative perspective why they would want to put him in that particular 
like environment, but it does not make any sense that he would just like allow himself to be apprehended by like the cops and put I guess in gen pop, you know, he can leave it like any time, I guess is part of it. Um, and also it's just like a cheap set, like filming there. And the other location he goes to is a, well, he goes to a dive bar for a little bit, but also, um, a casino. And those sets are just like really cheap looking, uh, and also full of people who would be making wishes like crazy with wild abandon. Desperate folks. Yeah. And one of them does wish to be able to walk through the bars, which we see happen, um, as he's like forced through the bars. Most amusingly, I think to me, one guy, <laughs> he he blames his parole officer, or not his parole officer, his um, public defender for failing to note that the search that happened to him was bogus. So he wishes to see his lawyer fuck himself. And so he goes into the room with his lawyer, who is then telling him, like, hey, by the way, I think I've got a way to get you out of here and get the police off of your case. And he's like, oh, wow, that's great. And then and then he watches as his lawyer's body painfully contorts and then starts humping itself. <laughs> like, it's the humping that really made me laugh. That gag lit my imagination on fire as a child. <laughs> and I thought about that gag a lot. And I thought it was in the first one because I'd seen both of these on TV as a kid. And it just really like I was like, what a funny gag. And I thought about that forever. Um, and when I watched Wishmaster one last Halloween, that's when I was doomed to watch the sequels. Because like, where's the lo- my lawyer should go fuck himself gag. Uh, and whenever no. it never happened, I was like, well, I guess I'm watching two through four until I get to it. Because uh, <laughs> it really is like the best part of that movie. And it's like maybe 20 seconds. And it's the most imaginative one too. Like yeah. the going through the bars is is decent, but like one of them is just like this guy's like two lieutenants turn on him and beat him up. You know, it's like where's the imagination? Where's where's the gore? Where's the woman turning into a tree? And also, I'm going to be uh, the pedant here, you know, uh, and say that. The very first wish of Wishmaster 2 invalidates the ending of Wishmaster 1, the Wishmaster. Okay, I have a thing <laughs> about the the wish at the end. I wasn't sure if we were going to get there. Okay, let's let's dig into that. Uh, there were so many ways he could have twisted it. Like, still have a very, very similar, like, outcome. Or at least to, like, everybody over. Well, it's it's the last thing that happens before he has any effect on Yeah, okay. That's true. Anything that she could have said that happened after that, he could have twisted because he was already out and about. But it's, I, I understand the logic that he can't make any effects. He can't twist something that happened that is, you know, uh, so close to his release, but not far enough in advance that anything else could have changed. Also, he's like so desperate to get it over with that he kind of like jumps on granting that wish without really thinking of the consequences. Oh, yeah. Because he doesn't realize what he's done immediately. That's true. It's it's much like the, I wish you would leave. (laughs) Yeah. I kind of, I was expecting her to be like, I wish we had never met. Oh, yeah. And thinking about it, she does immediately say like, I bet you wish we'd never met. But I, I thought that that was what her actual wish was going to be. And so I was a little surprised when it was something so specific. And it really did make the character seem, you know, more interesting, I thought. But Allie, get this. The very first wish 
of Wishmaster 2, instead of saying, I wish I was out of pain, like the uh, guy in the first one, the boyfriend who gets shot during the art heist says, I wish I was never born. Okay? He says, I, I wish I was never born. And yet, that changes nothing. People still remember him. People miss him. The fact that um, his girlfriend, who is the lead, never hears about his body being found is what leads her to go and visit the Wishmaster in prison. I guess that was my other big problem, is that like he keeps telling her to fulfill the prophecy, but like he doesn't go and visit her in person. He doesn't even kind of like try to do the thing that he did in the first one where he tracks her down, which I thought was kind of fun. Like it makes sense that he wouldn't just know where she was. He had to like go through some steps and then lead her into a trap. But you would think that if wishing to never be born didn't have a ripple effect on any of the other shit, then that would also mean that the ending of Wishmaster, where she makes one simple wish that has a huge ripple effect, and in fact is intended to create that ripple effect, it just, I was like, <laughs> that's when my pedant brain was like, no, if he wished he was never born, his like girlfriend should have woken up the next morning and at best wondered why she committed to an art heist by herself. Yeah. I mean, the way he goes about that wish is, uh, maybe more diabolical than that. I mean, he like, like unmakes him to his cells, but I yeah, he like regresses age wise until he's nothing. So like he like shrinks down in a little baby and then the baby's gone, uh, which was very dumb. <laughs> but uh, I think, yeah. that, I don't know if you, if you want to read into it, it could be like, Oh, he, he manipulates the situation to his own advantage. Um, right. To not be trapped again the way he just was, but okay, all right. More yeah. likely, they just wanted to do that gag where the guy age regresses, and that was the entire point of the exchange, and they got what they wanted out of it. it was so <laughs> bad. It was so yeah. bad. There's really nothing to recommend in that one, especially after the Wishmaster gets out of prison about halfway through. the The second half, like, just sort of drags. Yeah, I will say. For our listening audience and for you, Ali, just see if you can find a clip of the I want my, my lawyer, lawyer to fucking suck. Okay. <laughs> Other than that, maybe don't worry about it. But I did stop there. So I mean, I don't want to spend too much time on three and four, but like the third one is Wishmaster goes to college. <laughs> and most of it <laughs> is like college drama between these characters we've never met before. They have no depth whatsoever. And they're like maybe four or five wishes spread out over like an 80 or 90 minute movie. They're few and far between. They're unimaginative. And uh, an angel comes. I don't know if it's like Michael or Gabriel or somebody like comes to campus and uh, smites the Wishmaster with a sword. Uh, so the movie, the movie becomes weirdly Christian uh, in its mythology. The fourth one is like not really much better, except that it tries to like at least introduce blasphemy into the series. So like when the angel comes to Earth to smite the Wishmaster in that one, um, it's like a problem. And the uh the Wishmaster is having these like debates with other, it seems like demons from hell. So still Christian, it's still Christian like mythology, 
but uh it, it kind of like at least makes it weird again and like introduces like blasphemy to the situation so i don't know three and four not really any more worth watching than two three is definitely the worst <laughs> like that one is like completely awful the fourth one um at least goes out of its way to like reintroduce some kind of like sense of surrealism to the scenario because i mean really the first the first movie it's main draw is it's like surrealistic effects and like the reason you put Wes Craven's name all over it is because of the nightmare brand and like those dream sequences in the nightmare movies basically allow you to do anything that your practical effects department can realize and like that's what the wishmaster promise is as well is like the wishes are an excuse to like flex your special effects department and uh yeah by the time you get to the fourth one it, it starts to lose that basic payoff of this but in the first one all the special effects look great and everyone's having a great time doing them and yeah uh, it's just like a free-for-all of just like fantastic sights i think it really fails to hook you at the beginning in that second one too because of the you know the first one has that really great past sequence with the monstrous party and like the sort of um exposition this one really could have benefited from doing what a lot of direct-to-DVD or direct-to-video sequels do and just taken that sequence from the first one, that party at the end, clips from it, and then explained how the Wishmaster ended sealed back up in the gym again before you do the heist part. But I guess they couldn't do that for some reason. Some reason they thought starting with this like not very interesting art heist was going to be the best i don't know you like the blasphemy at the end of that one too where she turns uh the wishmaster turns morgana's uh christian boyfriend into jesus christ on the cross and tortures him that way that's kind of fun <laughs> yeah he's not just her christian boyfriend he's a priest oh great <laughs> Allie, just to make sure that you know you i mean it's that that makes it more blasphemous that he's like because she she does go to like she's like I know that before you were a priest we used to bang and he's like you can't you can't come around like this anymore. Oh my gosh, that's the most baffling thing about the sequels is like why are they Christian at all? It's like a complete lack of imagination about what makes this evil Jin character special. Is he's not in the usual horror Catholic iconography? Like he's outside of that. It's a whole different religious like realm they could play with, and instead they just sort of revert what they know which is like angels and demons uh it's very disappointing you don't need to watch any of these besides the first one i agree well next week on the show we're going to talk about evil professionals i think y'all would both really like the movie that britney selected for like the main topic which is the plumber from the late 70s uh directed for television by peter weir which i what? think makes it interesting what is this the plumber is a movie directed by Peter Weir for TV. It's about an evil plumber who just like uh, ruins this couple's life. Um, I think that Allie would like it mostly for the Peter Weirness of it. And I think Boomer would like it because it's about a woman who's driven insane by a very pushy macho man. And you know, I love Australia. Yeah, I was going to say, and then we got Australia. <laughs> I love Australia. I love Australians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and that one's on the Criterion channel, and it's like 70 minutes. And I think from there, we're going to talk about other evil professionals. So, like, the Ice Cream Man and Dr. Giggles and uh, one-hour photo about a uh, violent one-hour photo developer. Talk to y'all then. Ooh.
Bye, everybody. Farewell. I feel like I've been locked up tight for a century of lonely nights, waiting for someone to release me.